Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with MLB Slugger, Richie Sexton. Deep left field, they don't lead anymore. Long home run for Richie Sexton. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the show, we've got one of my good buddies. We're only teammates for a year, but uh, he's a longtime friend. Drove in 100 runs six times, and he's the tallest man in the world. Richie Sexton, Big Sexy, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here, bud. Glad you're doing it. I thought I drove in more than 100 runs six times, though. Is that a lie? I think it's accurate. I mean, I have to do a little research, even on my best friends. I still have to do a little research, <laughs> dig it up. It's impressive. It's impressive. Yeah, I mean, I took I, I took pride in driving in uh, runs more than I did hitting home runs. That's for sure. I'd rather take a single with the bases juice than a drive in two than a solo jack. So I think hitting in the middle of the lineup for sure, RBIs are important. All right, sexy. Where did it all begin? Uh, we're going to go back, go back to your childhood, and um, it, let's go to little league days where it all started. I know we're, we'll get to your high school. I know you played all three sports, starting all three. Read up on you a little bit about that because when we go golfing on our golf trips, we don't talk about our high school days, but. <laughs> just start with little league start with your first love was it baseball was it basketball was it football were you always that the biggest kid tell me a little bit about your childhood no i definitely wasn't always the biggest um you know my growth my growth spurt happened between my freshman and sophomore year i think that's when i i think i think i grew six inches or something in like i don't know six or seven months pretty much and so um growing up i mean it was i had an older brother he was four and a half years older than me so and he was kind enough to let me chase him around with his friends and i think having an older brother really helps the younger one develop too i think we played all sports all day long man mom had to you know had to ring the dinner bell to get us back home so we were outside a lot more i think <laughs> definitely more than the, the, our kids are these days for sure but you know literally we had a sand lot you know, we, that we played at every single day, tennis balls. Um, this is going to sound crazy, but I honestly think I learned how to hit it to right field uh, with a little bit of power because the only place you could hit a dinger on our sand lot was to right. So I learned how to kind of inside out the ball at a young age. And, you know, I, <clears throat> I think I loved all sports. So, man, I played them all. I, um, I think by the time I got out of high school, I was, you know, basketball, believe it or not, was something I thought I had a better future at, but a lot of other people didn't. Um, so I just kind of chose the, the baseball the baseball route late. And, um, you know, football for me was just Fridays. I hated Monday through Thursday. Practice stunk. I had no fun. Back then we used to hit a lot and just got injured and whatnot. So uh, I don't know. I just kind of came down. I signed at the University of Portland and for both basketball and baseball, but ended up getting drafted in the way we went. Yeah, so you said you, you played all three. Uh, you thought your future was hoops. You, you signed with the University of Portland. 
So I'm looking in, in a 93, you get drafted by the Cleveland Indians, 24th round. So it's not like you're a top five pick. You know, most of us out of high school weren't high round picks. Mm-hmm. What what was that decision like for you saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go with professional baseball and, and kind of forego that college experience. What, what was the deciding factor for you? Um, I actually, so I went to a, I went to a camp, my, in between my junior and senior year in high school, I went to a, a Reebok camp that was the top 50 players on the West coast. And it was down in, uh, for basketball and it was down, the um, you know, what, what was it? Cal State and Dominguez Hills, I guess is the name of the place. And I ended up just, you know, when I got down there, dude, I didn't see the ball for three days. Um, you know, guys were better than I was. I was comfortable and I was pretty good at basketball for my area. But once I spread my wings a little bit and saw, you know, what, what those what those guys are doing down in California, you know, you start right then, you're kind of like, well, maybe this isn't for me. And, uh, you know, I was a tough decision but that was kind of when I that was kind of when I really started to lean towards baseball and um, my theory on being drafted so late but yet still going to give it a shot was basically that I don't know I I, we were hurting a little bit for money at the time but I wouldn't say that was everything Um, my my theory was to go give it a shot and I was still young enough that if it didn't work out as a 24th round pick I could go back to college and play basketball and try to attack that route. You know, it's funny that you mentioned uh, once you got out of, of your comfort zone and went down to Cali and saw what was really out there from a basketball standpoint, you know, big Bob Boone we had on the, uh, we had on the program, you know, a month or so back, you know, we don't talk about it much because you don't know, you know, you don't know my dad as an ex-basketball player, but he has the same type of resume as you. You know, he's a three-sport yeah. star in uh, basketball, football, baseball. You know, the All-American kid, he signs, he, he gets a scholarship to Stanford, and he signed as a basketball player and baseball player. And he said that first, that first uh, year of basketball for him, he went into the gym and he was shocked. He said, I had no idea. I got out of my fishbowl and these guys were just too good for me. And he goes, I went full-time baseball and I had to go that route. So hearing that story, you know, it makes me think of my dad and his story. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, just, you go down there and you get exposed. I mean, people are telling you, you know, that you're pretty good and you are, you know, you're, you're one of the top scorers in the state, this, that, and the other, but you're right, man. You you get out of that fishbowl, you go down there, and you, you're all of a sudden you're playing with guys that they play one sport and they play it year round, and and they're damn good at it. They're better than you. They're taller than you. They're faster than you. And all of a sudden you realize that maybe you know maybe this isn't the route. So then you just you you move on. I, that, that's the I tell kids that even this day, even my high school kids that you know you recommend playing all sports like you know, Bob and we did all growing up. I mean, you didn't love hoops, but you chucked up some bricks anyway, you know, believe I did and- believe I did. <laughs> and you let, and you let me know about it. <laughs> oh, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, but they, yeah, you just, I don't know, man, you, you, that's why I tell kids to just play all three sports. You never know if you're going to be tall, you're, you're going to be fast. You're going to be, you know, this, that, or the other, I think, um, having more, 
options moving forward as far as college goes and scholarship and playing sports. And, and I know these days, these kids are really good. They're, these high school baseball players are definitely better than I was. And it's because a lot of them play year round one sport and I get it, but I actually, I actually, you know, try to tell my kids, if you can play them all, man, you get your aggressiveness from football, you get your footwork from basketball, you know, a little hand eye from baseball. They all tie in to make a certain athlete and, You'd hate to give up on other sports just, you know, to do one year round. Maybe it's not your sport and you don't know it. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And and if we have time late the pie, I'll let you tell my hoop story, which I told you, but you love. It, it's all it's almost become now like you were there, <laughs> which makes it even funnier. All right. Oh, yeah. Now, a lot is made. Uh, you know, I, I, I say in jest all the time to you about, oh, Richie, the tallest man in the world, this, that. We we have fun with it. All all our buddies do. But you sign with the Cleveland Indians, you go to pro ball, and in all seriousness, you all are, you're the tallest position player ever to play. You know, people think of, of Dave Winfield as being, you know, this big, tall guy. Frank Howard was kind of kind of the bar i guess that was set for for height today it's a little different you got a judge you got a stanton in the same in the same lineup but it, it was a real thing for you and and we talked a little bit about it i used to tease you all the time about oh if i had the leverage you had and you'd be like yeah how about if you had you know these arms which are a foot longer than mine uh, a lot more can go wrong and there and there's good points to both of that what were the what were the challenges for you just being you know, as big as you are going into pro ball and kind of finding your way, eventually, you know, your, your debut with the, in the big leagues is 97, but what was that like for you going through the minor leagues? It was, I mean, it was tough. It was an adjustment. I mean, coming out of high school, well, you know, you'll, you know, back then it was all aluminum. We didn't, we didn't have lights. We didn't have nine inning games. You know, it was all a shock to me. I mean, I went right away. I went to Burlington, North Carolina, and I hit 186 with one homer and five ribbies, you know, and I was at the end of the year. I was kicking rocks. You know, I was, I thought, well, that's it. And, um, you know, I'm going to go back. And I actually went back home and, and signed up at a little community college by the house. I was going to play hoops and then kind of work my way back into the hoop avenue and I got invited. Somebody saw something in my batting practice in Burlington and they invited me to an instructional league. And that's where I really got the hands-on hitting instruction from dudes that knew what the heck they were doing. You know, it's hard to learn when you go right from high school and you're playing games in Burlington. You can't, you don't really get a chance to learn how to stay inside the baseball properly and barreling it up and getting those good solid reps that you need to become a good player especially out of high school, you know, guys, guys that go to college are a little ahead of the curve. You know, they've, they've had some good quality coaching. They've, you know, they've had a bunch of reps. They've specialized in that sport. And so I was just super green when I, when I came out, but that instructionally really, really helped me. Um, you know, with, with my height, I learned how to stay inside the ball using wood bats. I mean, you know, that's different. It's a different swing. I don't care what anybody says. You can't, you can't have that same aluminum swing. So a lot of reps. Um, I would say, you know, being, being tall hurt me just, just strike zone wise. And if you talk to umps, they're like, you know, heck it was hard to call balls and strikes on you. You know, if you had a shorter dude in front of you and then all of a sudden you come up and I know they don't try not to change their zone, but it's hard for them not to. 
And so they're, they're pretty set in their ways when you step in there. Each guy kind of has his strike zone that he works with. So I struggled a little bit there. Um, but as far as like reaching pitches, I could do it. I have long arms so I could get there. Um, but I really had to concentrate on where I stood in the box against certain guys. And I'm not going to lie. I had to guess a little bit on hard sinker ball guys, Kevin Browns of the world, guys that could move it across the dish into my hands, cutters, left-handed cutters, big problem for me. I think it ran me out of the game. Uh, that and right-handed changeup. But we just, I think you just learn over time, you know, when it's your body and you've had, I've been tall since I was 16. I had to adapt and that's kind of the progression that it went on. I think just more reps and understanding, seeing pitches, understanding what I could do with them with my body. Yeah, that's, that's, man, there, there are. And, and like I said, you know, I prefaced it with, I give you a hard time about it, but there really are challenges within, you know, there's definitely the pros. There's definitely the pros that leverage you have, but man, a lot more can go wrong. And I see that with, with these modern day, you know, big guys that an Aaron judge and, and, and the physicality is different nowadays too, with these guys and how they train, you know, they start training at 15. We didn't really do that. So judge is kind of a, uh, a defensive lineman hitting a baseball. And, and you've seen the last few years, he's, he's had a tough time staying on the field and, and that's got to be a side challenge as well. It is. Yeah. I mean, you know, like you said, there's, there is, a, there's a lot of moving parts as a tall dude and, you know, it's, the judge is a great example. I mean, I, He's obvious. He's a little. He's a better all-around probably hitter than I was. I would say, but he has the same problems. And when I watch uh, Yankees games, I can. I just want to call him and go, God, I, you know, I know what he's doing wrong. I know what he's doing wrong. Uh, and maybe one day I will. But he, you know, I'll I'll shoot something to Aaron once in a while and just say, Dude, he's, uh, you know, he's really he's obviously conscious of the inside pitch because he's in the bucket, you know, and. And these pitchers, and with the with the analytics and all the stats that are being thrown at them, and they find a hole on you and they attack. And that's the difference in the big leagues. They attack it until you figure it out and readjust. And you know, Judge and I obviously had to readjust more than most. So it it is tougher. And the you know hitting the homers, the strikeouts are going to come with it, and you're going to have to deal with that. And I think the media and the fans are a little more tolerable about the strikeouts these days maybe than they were when I was than, than when we were playing um which is good I mean you're, you're seeing a couple second baseman with you know 20 homers punching out almost 200 times and it's okay now so it, it everything's just different and you know I being like I said just you know being judge and being you know taller dudes it's just a lot more moving parts that you got to constantly be tinkering with all right, so you get to the uh, get to the minor leagues. Ninety seven, you make your debut. You kind of get your cup of coffee. I, 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 that takes me back uh, because to the people out there listening on the podcast, uh, me and Richie are probably five years apart. So I remember those Cleveland Indian teams of the nineties. I was in Cincinnati at the time, and and I remember the Alomar and and Matt Williams and Vizquel and Lofton and Justice. Uh, Kevin Mitchell was on the roster. I was looking at that. Um, but what's, what's, what stood out to me more is when you were coming up, the, the amount of young talent on that team was, was ridiculous. Guys went on to just 
you know, everyone on this list is an all-star couple guys, hall of famers. Uh, you had Manny, Tommy, uh, Burnett's I think was there before you. Uh, but Sean yeah. Casey, who got traded over to the, to the reds, you had Brian Giles and Richie Saxon, all young players on a roster that I, that I mentioned that was laden with veteran guys. What kind of atmosphere was that? Was that Cleveland of the nineties when you first came up? It was it was amazing, man. I mean, it was a it was a a rock star type atmosphere. You know, when you got to the not saying that we were rock stars, but it felt like a rock concert. Like it, I think they sold out like six hundred and something straight games. I can't remember the exact number, but they used to throw it up on the board in the outfield, and it was man. The people in that town, you know, it was kind of the only thing going. I think Modell had taken the Browns out of there and the Cavs were kind of garbage at the time. And we put in, they put the new stadium in there, Dick Jacobs, and it just turned the whole city around. And it was just, I remember being drafted by the Indians and thinking, oh man, the mistake by the lake. This That's, I don't know why he was thinking about the big leagues at the time, but you know, you're a cocky young kid. You're thinking, yeah, I got to play in the mistake by the lake. You know, you haven't hit 186 yet. So you got like, <laughs> so that's just the way it is. But no, I mean, our town, our our A team in Buffalo, I think the, well, the minor leagues is only 142 games scheduled. And I think we won a hundred of them boat raced the IL and won the whole thing. I mean, we, Jarrett Wright, we had Julian Tavares, Bartolo Colon, Albi Lopez. It was our, our A team was a joke. It was, and the reason for that is because of, of the talent that was at the big league level. I mean, you know, in AAA, it felt like you'd, I'd have 25 or 30 homers at the break and just sitting down there marinating, waiting for a shot. But you're not going to go up there and play for Albert Bell and Manny Ramirez and Lofton and Tony. You know what? Suck it up. Those guys are all hitting 300, driving in 100 every year. So you had to just take your lumps and, and buy your time and, you know, realize that you're playing for, you know, 29, 30 other teams and, you know, just do well and your time will come. So 99, you get a break, your breakout season, uh, you hit 31 homers, drive in 116 runs. And then you head to Milwaukee and from 01 to 03, you're doing some damage. You had 45 homers twice, drive in a hundred, all three years, uh, you're setting Brewer records. Just, just touch on those Brewers days a little bit. Uh, the Brewers days—they they were fun, man. I think Milwaukee has—it gets a bad rap. I, I enjoy that city. I enjoyed the people in it. I, I loved the way it was. Kind of one of those cities where you could literally walk out before the game, go have a hot dog in the, in the parking lot with everybody. You know, it was that that type of town, and we had a bunch of really just neat, good dudes on the team. Um, at the same time, we lost 100 games every year, so it, it was tough. Um, but, you know, that being in Milwaukee was, you know, a great thing for a power hitter. That place is, I mean, you go from the other, from County Stadium, the other one, which is fairly big. I mean, I know you played in it, and if you caught, you know, you caught a ball pretty good to left, right, center, it did not want to go out all the time. Just had dead air and just a big yard. So being a power hitter moving into that new stadium was perfect timing for me. I mean, I, 
when I first got there, I was getting, I popping them up and kind of frustrated and they were clearing the wall by 20 or 30 feet. And just that Milwaukee changed my career forever. I just, you know, there was, you know, a couple of years there where it just, it felt like my years were mediocre, but I was still putting up good numbers somehow. And I, I think that's attributed to playing in a small yard, you know, like, the opposite of Seattle where we played where power hitters go to die pretty much. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think the Hawks- Yeah, but you know, it seems lately and well, I mean, they finally came out and they're they're deadening the ball this year. But uh, I had noticed in, in recent years in Seattle, because you're right, uh back in the early two thousands, uh when Seattle was, you know, early in his infant stages being built, uh the ball didn't go. Yeah. I think a lot's changed with you know, they brought the fences in, and I think the building, the way the uh, – there's some new buildings that have gone up, so I think it has changed how the ball flies there. So I think it, it's flying a little bit better. It helps that they, they move the fences in a little bit, but you're right. It, it's back in those early 2000s, no matter who you talk to, from, from you know, A-Rod to Griffey uh, to myself to Edgar to you to, to the guys that played in that generation, it's – you got you got to hit it in Seattle. You don't you don't hit too many cheapies. So yeah, you 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 went from and and we'll cover that a bit little bit later. Uh, your Seattle days, but you go from Milwaukee and you're in a nine player deal. You head to Arizona, another good mm-hmm. good yard to hit in. But uh, that's when you hurt your shoulder. Uh, tell yeah. me how you hurt your shoulders. Checking your swing, son. Yeah, dude, the worst injury ever. It was um, so I was. I mean, I, I, it was Latroy Hawkins. I don't know if you remember him. He had a big, he, I do. Too good heat. Yeah, it had a big hook, and it backed up. I went out to get it. I was actually sitting on a hook. I kind of, you know, I was a taller dude. I had to guess once in a while. If I felt comfortable and the guy fell into a pattern, I would guess on him, and I sat curveball, and he threw. I got the pitch. But it's similar to, like, a, when you're facing, like, in a simulated game and a guy is telling you what's coming – you know, you kind of get geared up to swing. And so he threw it and it started at me and I went to swing and it backed up. It never, it didn't do anything. So when I stopped my swing, my shoulder just popped out of in the middle of my back. I don't, I don't even know what happened. I don't know why it happened. I think it might've been a, maybe a previous injury or my labrum might have already been torn. Um, I'm not sure, but it, it destroyed the labrum at that time. And I tried to rehab it for a couple of weeks. Um, and then it just, I couldn't do it. I went to the Marlins. I, I played and uh, against Brad Penny. I got a hit my first at bat. BP was going well. And then I checked swung again and it popped back out. And that's when the season was over. I had to get surgery and that was it. And that year too. Okay. For the people out there listening, uh, if you haven't, seen Richie, the ball he hit off his face at, at Diamondback Stadium. You got to Google it, especially after listening to him on this podcast. The, the one positive thing that the kind of the iconic thing that came out of your year in Arizona, I don't think anyone's ever hit that scoreboard. I don't let people know you got to hit a ball 500 feet straight away to hit your face on the jumbotron. You did hit your face. <laughs> I did. I actually, 
I think I did. I don't, that's what I heard. I think I hit my, maybe where my face was. I don't know if my face was on there. I, I have to go read back and review the video, but it's, it's worth a they, Google. Yeah. I remember when they, uh, they, when they showed where the lights had broke, it was right in the middle of, uh, Steve Finley's face. Cause he was on deck and I did. So it must've been, I'm imagining it, <laughs> it was where mine was, but that was, um, that, dude, that's another, that was another guy just blowing cheese. I got into a good comfy count. And then, you know, as long as you don't try to pull a baseball and he provides the pop, it was just one of those ones that's like a good golf shot or anything else. Just didn't feel it just perfectly. Everything, the stars were lined up and I, and I ended up, you know, rip, you know, just everything was right. And, you know, I still think it was further. I don't like their measurements. I, I want to get the <laughs> tape out. I, I don't know how. How it was only five hundred and four feet or whatever. Well, they they, they, they don't they don't tape them right. They don't tape right. I mean, that's where they that's you know that's where they measure it too. It's still got to come down. So at yeah. least get, I'll give yeah. you another thirty at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been some big ones for sure, but no, that that, that was fun. That was the my my season. That was my two hundredth home or two, and that the next day my season ended. Believe it or not, that was maybe that swing was what did it. All right, so you, that season, uh, at the end of that season, you're a free agent. You signed a big deal with Seattle, and and uh, we were teammates for a year. I was kind of wrapping up my tenure uh, coming to the end of my career, but we got to play together for a year, and. Um, we're going to start it off with our spring, our, our spring training story. And let me set the stage a little bit for you. So Richie comes to town, uh, new guy in town, him and uh, our big signings that off season was Richie and Adrian Beltre, who we recently had on the program. And uh, for those of you who don't know in, in spring training, especially the first week, the first week or two, the veteran players, it's kind of protocol to, to go and get your work in. So you'll go get an at-bat, maybe two uh, at the beginning of spring training, and then you're, you're eligible. You can pick up and in between innings. Uh, you can leave and go get, your, go get your work in in the weight room, do ice, your rehab, whatever you need to do. So ESPN's covering the Seattle Mariner game. <laughs> and Rick, Rick Sutcliffe's at the wheel. He's doing the, he's doing the play-by-play. Who, who Richie and myself, through Nike trips, we both know, Sut very well, and uh, so we're we're leaving. We we both got our second bat or our first bat, whatever it was. We're leaving mid inning. Pick it up from there. Well, basically, we we call him Putcliffe, by the way. Terrible putting. I hope he listens to this. Terrible putter. Um, basically, I think it went down like we were walking out together, and me being a maybe larger stature than you walking out together. Sutcliffe had maybe mentioned over the air that I didn't know that today was a father son game. So it, it, <laughs> it is hilarious. It is hilarious. Cause all the pictures we've had taken through the years at our golf trips, it, it's still funny to look at it. Richie's always kind of bending down in the picture, not to make you feel too short. But uh, yeah, 
I remember that site, and somebody gave me a picture of us walking off, and it does. I mean, you're literally a oh. foot taller than me, and we're walking, you know, we're hitting thir- third and fourth in the lineup, just a foot difference in stature. But <laughs> that's how we kind of kicked it off. Uh, and I want to talk about Seattle. You come to Seattle, and, um, you know, fans were tough on you, and you mentioned, and you mentioned, um, today's game versus game even 20 years ago uh, and how strikeouts are kind of accepted in today's game. I remember you always told me, Booney, I'm going to strike out. That just, that's, that's what I come with. And, and I always respect that. And I thought, no, that's, that's his game. This is the first year we're playing together, but you always told me that you said, I'm going to strike out. That comes with it. I'm going to drive in a hundred and I'm going to hit a lot of homers, but I'm going to strike out. And I remember the fans were, we're kind of tough on you. I look back at those numbers, though, your first year. You hit 39 homers in a big yard. You drove in 121. There's guys out there in today's game that would kill for those numbers. And, uh, you know, I think you did. You led the league in strikeouts that year. In today's game, that wouldn't, you wouldn't even be in the top 10. But uh, speak to that. And, and, you know, the players on the ground, your peers, uh, we appreciate those numbers. We know how tough those are to obtain, you know, 39, 121. But uh, just walk me through a little bit what it's like, you know, uh, and, and not, not saying, you know, I just thought people were tough on you. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. That's tough. I mean, again, we going back to Milwaukee where they were, they were pretty accepting, you know, they were willing to give up some strikeouts for some homers. And then, you know, Seattle, yeah, they were tough. I mean, it was, you know, I was, I was putting up pretty good numbers and, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't hitting 220. I was hitting 265, 270. It wasn't, you know, wasn't a, you know, where I was just not never getting a hit outside of, you know, strikeouts and homers. And, you know, they, um, I, Seattle was just a different environment. Um, for me, it felt like, it felt like they weren't, God, I want to use the right words here, but I like, they weren't ex- totally knowledgeable about the game or about the actual players that were on their team. It almost felt like we were dealing with, with people that, you know, would show up with the North face on and the Birkenstocks and it was the first game that they'd ever been to. And so they really didn't know me as a person or as a player or what type of player that I was. They saw results for that day. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't like, I'm not trying to bury the Seattle fans here, but you know, it just felt like um, there wasn't enough hardcore everyday season ticket holders to understand that there's going to be good days and bad days. I think there's a, there's a little bit of truth to that. I, I think the turnover from day to day from fan to fan was a little, uh, um, was a little too much for them to understand exactly what we were doing every day outside of wins and losses. You, you uh, talk a little bit about, we, I had Adrian, I mentioned earlier, I had Adrian on the program, uh, Beltre who's you guys kind of united there in Seattle. You both came in at the same time and uh, become really good friends. Adrian still to this day, one of my favorite teammates of all time. Uh, and, and you look up and, and we were talking about this, uh, this off season, this winter, 
Adrian, you know, you look up at the end of his career and you, and you just look at his numbers. And we know the great player he was, the great defender he was. But, I mean, he went from that guy we were playing with, like a really good all-star caliber player. This guy is a first ballot, maybe the greatest third baseman ever. Talk a little bit about Adrian. Well, he's, I mean, he's for sure the best third baseman I've ever played with. Um, I mean, and a super dude. I mean, he's just a, he's an outstanding guy and he's, he does so much for the, you know, the connection between, um, you know, the English speaking players and the Latinos and there's no favoritism either way. And I always love that about him. You know, he hung out with all, you know, he was a chameleon. He hung out with anybody. If you had to go out for a nice dinner, he'd jump on board. Um, that type of a dude, great teammate. Um, definitely wanted him on your side if a brawl was going on. That's a, he's a strong dude, man. Um, but he was one of the fortunate ones, you know, going back to, we were talking about just, you know, if you could get, if you were young enough and you could withstand the beating that the Seattle, the size of the Seattle yard was for a power hitter and you could move on to another place, your career could keep going. And I think he's a perfect example of that. He was, I mean, you know, man, he, he was almost dead in the water there in Seattle. Uh, by the end of his by the end of his career, but he was young enough to fight it off and go and go to Boston and then just destroy. And then obviously he moves on to Texas and you know everything. It's it's funny how careers work and each guy's different. And you know some guys figure out how to hit later in life. Um, some guys learn to hit early and fizzle off. And Adrian just kind of put the whole thing together. Man, he he was able to with his defense and his mental toughness, he was able to make it out of Seattle and, and survive. And, and, you know, and you and I have talked about that before. It was an amazing job because he could, that could have been it for him, man. And, and a lot of us that know Adrian's career know that could have been it. But Adrian and I are great friends, man. We hang out, you know, a couple times a year on trips and wives are best buddies. And, you know, we, uh, I really enjoy that guy. I'll be there the day he gets inducted for sure. Who are your summer? Who are some of your favorite guys to watch hit? Oh, my number. I mean, gosh. Well, Barry Bonds for me. I find myself on defense, just sitting there and not forgetting that I'm playing defense, just watching how easy he made the game look. And you know, in my opinion, he's the greatest player of all time. And you can say whatever you want, but He's the greatest player that ever lived. So I don't know. But and for me, left-handed swings, they look so much cooler than righties. We look like morons. Even when we're going good, we don't look as smooth. Um, but I always, enjoy, I always enjoyed Manny Ramirez. He had the unbelievable ability to make swings look smooth from the right side. Versus everybody from the left side looked like they were the next you know, Babe Ruth Hall of Famer coming up. And so um, I think each side is a little different. I love, I could watch Manny hit all day long. He was, and I got to see it do it for years. And so that was always, I used to try to mimic him, but I didn't, I, that, that, that didn't work for me. I had to look really ugly and do the half swing with the hands by the hips. <laughs> too much work for me. Too much work for me to look like Manny. So those would probably, if I had to pick each side of the dish to work from, I would say Manny on the right side and Barry on the left. 
pitchers you hated facing? Pedro, that's easy. I dude, I I could have went up there and just not brought a bat. It was useless for me to go up there and hit off of Pedro. He threw five pitches out of the seam arm and throw one behind your neck. And if you got a seam, I never even got a hit off him. But he just was an uncomfortable at bat for me. I couldn't. It, and he was throwing. He he might have been the first dude um, in the when I was in the American League that threw me a, a right-handed changeup. We talked about that earlier, but. That's kind of a new thing, and he, dude, he was he was doing that. Besides Hoppy, and there's a couple guys that made a living doing it, a damn good living doing it. But he was the first guy thinking like, what? I said, what the hell was that? And it was, yeah, he was throwing, he threw everything. And then it's 96 with you know two feet of run for a tall guy, and then just nasty slider on the corner, hit spots. Literally could have went up there with no bat. You know, I had to had to look better. Big unit or Moyer? Who you rather face? Two extremes. More, easily Moyer. Easily Moyer. I just, I could just, you know, I could. Yeah, most guys would get up on the dish against a guy like Moyer. I got some hits off Moyer. I think I don't. I can't quite remember, but I got. But a lot of guys wanted to scoot up on the dish on him because he knew he was going to go soft away. But all he's going to do is just kind of keep throwing it a little further away. I used to back off even more and then just move up a hair and then invite him to throw it over the plate. And I had a lot of success with, or, you know, on, on any lefties that were a little softer throwing like, like Big Moyer was. Um, you know, we left, soft throwing lefties are tough. You know, Glavin, I think you got a couple of hits off him too. And I kind of did the same thing. Um, Glavin had a little more velo when he was younger, but Moyer was just a crafty little guy. You might ground out a couple of times to short really hard, you know, but I, Randy was just, that's, that was kind of a no thank you AB for me when he was in his prime and he was, and he was bringing it. I saw guys, I saw dudes in spring training when I was with Arizona, he'd throw a slider on the inner half. And they would swing, and it would hit him in the quad. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Guys swinging at it, and it actually hits them. So he was a dirty – I didn't like anything, any time a lefty that was, you know, coming in hot like that hard slider that you couldn't really pick up right away. But that was tough for a tall guy like me. You know, like Al Leiter was kind of tough on me. I used to just say, just take everything Leiter throws. He's going to throw you a cutter on the inner half. Just let it go. Don't even try to square it up because if you try to swing, you're going to just keep coming in further. So any lefties coming in hard like that, man, I, I want I want no part of it. Well, I'll tell you, Randy, they, you mentioned lighter. Lighter's my biggest nightmare. He used to just wear me out, that cutter in, cutter in. And I was a younger player at the time in the National League when, when I had my bulk of the bats against lighter. And, you know, you have that. You have that, uh, I'm going to get him out of my kitchen. You know, and the best I would do is rip one off the tarp, the strike one, you know, and we're back to the drawing board. Uh, I hated facing him. Randy would throw me, he he started, he'd 2-0, you know, he'd, he'd 2-0, 3-1 you with no situation, nobody on base. He'd flip you in a slider. He's throwing 100 from the left side. But when he started really pitching, he would front yeah. door me with that two seamer, bring it back. I'd argue with the umpire, almost get thrown out of the game, <laughs> go watch the video and, and have to say, I was wrong. That was a strike. 
And that's when I knew it's oh. like, Randy, you know, not only does he have that arm angle, he's so big, his stride's six feet, you know, so he's now he's throwing from 54 feet. But he was a pitcher. People didn't realize that. He wasn't just throwing hard with a good slider. He was pitching with with that type of with that type of uh, stuff. Oh yeah, no, he he was just nasty, man. I mean, it, you know that 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 was a pretty easy question for me. I think you know Moyer was just a comfy AB. You know, you you got in there and you were kind of like, yeah. Well, you face Randy, you're right. He actually, the dude figured out how to pitch, man. I think everybody. I think I was like, called. I played with him and I played against him. I, I think I'm like two for 20 career. I took him deep in spring training. <laughs> yeah. That was my, <laughs> that was my, uh, that was my, my, my at bats too. When I was with Cleveland, we'd go and we were playing in the dome and then, of course, none of the lefties won the play, so I got the garbage at bats. And they were always against dudes like that. Pettit, you know, Pettit sucked for me too, hard cutter. And then I'd get on first, like, he's not going to throw over. I got picked off. It's just a joke. Pettit was no fun for me either. But, yeah, Randy was, like, kind of my draw when I wasn't playing every day. When I first came up, I'd come up to, like, give guys breaks for the All-Star game so they could have a day off. And it was <laughs> – here you go. Here's Randy. Just like, oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Tough AB. So you uh, you finish your Seattle days, uh, and then you head to New York. You finish up there. Uh, your final, you know, your time in New York. You you only get twenty eight ABs, and you end up taking it to the house. Since uh, you finished with over three hundred homers, and. Uh, Stellar career, two-time All-Star. But you bring it home, you're in Bend, Oregon, uh, and you've been a coach at Summit High for, I think, the last seven years? Uh, yeah, coach. Yeah, we coached a little. Alan and Embrya and I did it, um, you know, did it together for three years. And then he ended up leaving and kind of, I have kids coming up through the program. And so I just kind of, I wanted to see things go right. And so I ended up taking over the head job. It's been fun, man. I, I enjoy hanging out with the, enjoy hanging out with these young kids. And, you know, I, I get to put myself back in that situation, you know, you know, being a young kid and not doing everything perfect. It's amazing. You know, there's a block when these kids are in high school. Some of the dumb things they do, it cracks me up a little bit, but you know, it, it is it's keeping me around the game and kind of keeping me, it keeps me near home too. So I can enjoy my own family and my own kids and, you know, try to make the program right for them when they come up and, and, and play. And no, I've enjoyed it, man. I've had, I've had a good time. It was, it's always hard when you're, career ends because you no matter who says that it's not a tough transition is lying because it is and you and you have to kind of try to keep yourself busy with doing various you know little you know business adventures or you know when I first retired when I first shut it down I was back home I was helping my dad do houses and stuff because it got me outside and you know it's just different transitions in life and kids are getting older and more fun and hunting and golfing and coaching baseball and I'm having a good time, man. I'm just trying to occupy my time. And I think, you know, when the kids, um, as the kids get older and start moving out, I, I'm, I'm hope, hopefully you and I can 
go out there and maybe start our own little coaching adventure somewhere at some point. I'd like to get back into the game. I don't, I'm a little worried about I'm getting too far removed to get back into it with the analytics and the way that things are. But I think it's something that I could figure back out when I have time. So I'm just, yeah, I'm enjoying it, man. And, and I got a chance to watch Richie. He came down to Southern California for, for a tourney a couple of years ago. And I went out and watched one of his games and it's, <laughs> you got the verbal signs and I love sign. it. I love the verbal signs. It's, it's Omaha flower <laughs> lampshade blue 22. And what is that translated to hit and run? Tell me a little bit about the verbal signs you got going there at summit high. All right. Well, I, well, it started. We we did the. I did the whole signs, the belts, the two taps to the hat, the down the arm, the scrape across, all the hot spots that a third base coach knows. And we missed every sign. I had guys getting thrown out. I got the you know dudes running all over. And I saw this the coach from um, God. I think it was Jesuit High School here in Oregon. He had the wristband on, and I'm like, that makes so much sense. The, kid, the kids just can't, you know, they got girls and they got, they got their parties and their schoolwork and their future. And they just cannot, re- they can't get the signs. If I do them, I do them on my body or use any sort of, you know, taps and hot spots. So I just moved them. I moved over to the wristbands and we haven't missed a sign yet. And I just can Omaha three, two, five, six, nine or whatever I want. And we we'll don't miss it. <laughs> Fake slash drag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we don't i don't reinvent the wheel though man we we play baseball i'm not gonna call any hardly any bunts and hit and runs and stuff unless it's the right part of the order there's a i let these kids play that that those signs are those signs are funny that you hate them i love them you need to get uh, it's not that i hate them it's not that i hate them. I, I just laugh i think it's funny <laughs> and and yeah and i you know i i don't think i'd ever think of going to the wristband signs i'd say for all you kids that are that are chasing girls and you got other things to worry about, baseball's the most important. You remember these freaking signs. And if you don't, you run. But no, I completely understand. It's more giving you a hard time than anything. But uh, <laughs> I just, I just, it's something I got over you and I'll always have it over you. It sounds like you really enjoy coaching and, and, and being with these kids. What's the most important yeah. thing you bring to the table? You know, we, we both got young kids, kids that are growing up now. Uh, what do you try to do as a mentor, as as the big sexy, you know, the big leaguer for ten or for ten, twelve years? Uh, what do you try to instill in these in these young men? I don't know. I think, well, first of all, the novelty of me being in the big leagues is completely worn off. That's not as scary for them. That's not as scary for them. It used to kind of intimidate them when we'd roll out of there and we were we were. You know, coming, we were pretty fresh out of the big leagues. Our names were still up. Now they just look at me like, yeah, coach and his running and his bullpen, so that type of stuff. So that novelty's worn off. But I think for me, and I mean, I'm sure it's for you as well when you're coaching these kids. And I think we, you, you have to understand and you, you really got to bring yourself back to that moment of when you did mess up you know you're going to do things wrong but it's going to be all right it's not the end of the world you know and I think um, hopefully I'm bringing a little calmness to their lives and I'm not a stressed out coach they're going to mess up and playing the game as much as we have we understand that and I think that 
you know, baseball is a little bit of a metaphor for life. And I know we've all heard that a thousand times, but you're going to, we're going to fail and we're going to mess up a lot of stuff, but it's how you deal with it. And I think, you know, for high school kids, that's important for them to understand is that, you know, you're going to mess up and it's going to be all right. And baseball is a failure sport. And, you know, I, I, I hopefully am bringing a little calmness to their life. I think if I could, if I could, you know, give myself any sort of positive coaching. So let's talk about Pebble Beach. Uh, for those out there listening to the podcast, uh, oh, we never win. There's a, there's a, we call it the world series of golf and it's, it's current and X uh, big league players that, that have a tournament up Pebble Beach. It's once a year. I've been going since the early nineties. Richie's been going since the late nineties. Uh, we hooked up about 12, 15 years ago. and We became a foursome. Richie brings his father. Uh, I've had uh, different, different uh, teammates through the year. Some years, Richie and myself are a two man team. That being said, all that, all that crap aside, uh, we're not even <laughs> close and I'm sick and tired of, how'd you do? Well, we had a good time. Uh, what? No. How'd you do? <laughs> I mean, we finished like 27th out of 30 teams. I mean, it, and it doesn't matter the combination. I think my best finish ever, and I've been going there literally 27 years. I think I finished third once. Uh, <laughs> I, I just need a little bit of a rally cry, something to get me motivated for next year, just to finish maybe top 10. What's it going to take? I mean, we're horrible. And it, 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 I love it. It's every night after the round. Hey, you, all right, Joey did good today. So don't worry about tomorrow, Joey. <laughs> Richie will pick up the slack and Boone and Stoltz and, and Ernie. Hey, you're going to do it tomorrow. What, what do we got to do to change this up? Uh well, it sounds like we got to cheat. Some dude pulled in with a sixty-eight this year in the in the in the minus seven handicap. Yeah, oh yeah, remember, remember I I got on him a little bit and he he, he lost it. Jeez. Oh yeah, and then he shank hosled it on the first hole. But I don't know, man. Well, I, here's the thing: I like that you told Warren, Jamie Warren, who I, for those of you out there is the guy who runs it. Awesome dude. But Brett rode him enough that he's going to move Pops up to the upper tees. I think that's going to help us because right now Pops, you know, he's got to hit it. He's got to rip it three bills to not hit three wood into the green, and that ain't happening. He's pumping it about 215, 220 right now on a good bolt. So I think moving him up, that was a good call on your part. I think also if, if maybe we just practiced a little more heading into it. I got a simulator now in the house, so before Pebble, I'm going to so I'm going to pump that on the, on, on the simulator, and I'm going to rip balls. I haven't been able to hit balls. That's why I'm terrible usually the first day because I can't. I, we live up here where it's snowing, uh, you know, pretty much leading into pebbles. So got the simulator. I'm going to rip balls, and uh, that's about it. All right, I, I just need a top ten. I just need a top 10. No more than that. Richie Sexton, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, it's it's been great. And and what we do here on the Boone Podcast, the very end, is we bring in the voice. Dan Levy, he's got a question for Richie. Dano. Richie, how are you? I'm excellent, buddy. Wonderful. Okay, here's a question for you. This one is from Jeff in Seattle. And the question is this. Okay. 
How hard was it to find baseball pants in your size when you were growing up? <laughs> um, extremely hard. I, I was a doofy looking dude. In high school, there wasn't a bunch of options. So basically, you turned the pants in at the end of the year and you got what you got. Coach wasn't going out fundraising and ordering us, you know, pants that fit. So I either had to go all the way up to the knees. And I don't know if you guys have seen my calves. They're not very big. So... Or I left them down and looked really bad. So I, it was a scuffle. If you want my honest opinion, it was a scuffle. All right, Richie Sexton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dave. Th- thanks, Brett. Thanks, Sexy. Mailbag. Okay, Brett, you know that sound. It is time to dip our hands into the Brett Boone mailbag. Ready to rock? Let's do it. Okay. All right, Brett, this one is from Dave in Cedar Point. What was the best stadium for power hitters in the AL? In the AL, uh, let me think. Texas was really good. I uh, I preferred. I really liked Yankee Stadium. Uh, it, it wasn't known for uh, giving up home run balls. I really liked it. Um, let me think. You love Yankee Stadium. I love we, it. We do this. One, uh, we do this one a lot. I, and it always comes back to the Yankees. Yeah. And, well, that in Anaheim. Anaheim was, you know, it wasn't known for a home run state. I loved it. I hit a bunch of homers there. Um, so, you know, Kansas City was a big yard. Detroit, uh, when they came to the new place, big yard. Um, I think. I think if you just took a poll of players, I think they would say Camden Yards was a real homer friendly place. Um, you know Boston for for a right-handed pull hitter, but but right field was really big. Um, yeah, but I'd, I'd have to go with uh, probably through and through. If you took a poll, uh, my time in the big leagues, American League, you, you'd probably go with Arlington, Texas. All right, Arlington, we go. Let's head back into the mailbag and dig us up this one. This is from Bill in Hollister, California, Brett. Do you get to pick what picture they use on the baseball card and how often do you get asked to sign Aaron's card by mistake? Uh, <laughs> very rare on the on the uh, Aaron's card, but you don't you don't get to pick it uh, they're, they're I don't know how they do it these days. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's similar. You have a photo day and you go station to station to station. You probably take 100, 200 pictures. Uh, in a half hour period. And uh, then the rest of the baseball cards, it could be an action shot, you know, in the middle of a game that you, you never knew people were taking pictures of you. So no, you have, you have absolutely no say in, uh, in what comes out on these baseball cards. All righty. And last one is from Mike in St. Louis. Brett, why do some players wear eye black underneath their eyes? Does it work, and why does everyone seem to wear it? I'm not going to commit to say it works. Uh, I used to call it styling stripes. It, it was kind of part of the uni, you know, uh, like a wristband. I, I don't see people using wristbands to really wipe the sweat off their brow. It's more of a, a fashion statement. I think the same with the eye black. Um, I, th- I think the theory is it cuts down on the glare on a sunny day game. Um 
I'll be honest. If if I wasn't hitting that well or I didn't get hits the previous day and I wasn't wearing eye black, I'd slap some eye black on. So to me, it was more of a of a superstitious thing. If I got two hits and wearing eye black, I'm wearing eye black tomorrow. If I didn't, take the eye black off. So, But I never really noticed the difference uh, in seeing with the eye black on or off. All right, so the eye black could actually be a slump buster. That is what we learned today on the Brett Boone Podcast. That's going to do it for the podcast itself. And once again, if you have questions or you want to have things answered on the podcast, simply head over towards Brett Boone's Twitter, at TheBoone29, and you can send your questions there. Also find them on Instagram as well as Facebook. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of this here podcast. The executive producer of it is Rich Herrera. Digital content gets handled by the lovely Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends. Make sure you subscribe. Also, never miss an episode of the show. And you can even head to the website, breadboonpodcast.com. You can get all that as well. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Bread Boone Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.